now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we return to the passage that we were beginning to consider last Lord's Day morning, verses 23 through 28. So Hebrews chapter 9, commencing to read at verse 23 and reading through the end of the chapter at verse 28. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the Word of God. Hebrews 9 at verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God endures forever. In his book, The City of God, Church Father Augustine noted that there is one event in history that is unrepeatable by its very nature. That event is the death of the Son of God for the forgiveness of sin. According to Augustine, the pivotal point of history was the death of Christ. He said that's the event upon which everything turns. And so as we come back to our text this morning in Hebrews 9 verses 23 through 28, we find here that the author focuses on the culminating event of Christ's whole work, His return into heaven after having offered His own blood for the sin of His people. We're going to think about three things this morning. First of all, His heavenly ascension revisited. Secondly, certain death and judgments. And then thirdly, 
eagerly awaiting. So his heavenly ascension revisited, certain death and judgment, and eagerly awaiting. So first of all then, heavenly ascension revisited. As we noted last Lord's Day morning, Christ's ascension is not a disconnected, isolated event. It is linked to Christ's life and to His death upon the cross. It is all part of His one work in His first coming to this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to bear the sins of His people. He was raised from the dead by the Father in acceptance of that sacrifice. And finally, He ascended into heaven, 40 days after His resurrection, to reign forever and ever as priest and king, and from where He sends the Holy Spirit, Father and Son, for the great salvation of His people the ministry of the Spirit being to apply the great benefits of the redemption accomplished by Christ. And so all of this forms one integrated work. And so as we come to verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews 9, we see the author here focuses on the culminating event of that whole work, Christ's ascension, His entry into heaven having offered his own blood for sin. Now, the author of Hebrews here in the beginning of this section presents the implications of that return, of that ascension, of that entrance into heaven. Even as Christ comes as Redeemer and High Priest, having shed his own blood upon the cross. First implication, that there was a need for a better sacrifice to be offered in that heavenly sanctuary than that of the blood of bulls and goats, which had been offered in the earthly copy by the priests of the Levitical order under the Old Covenant, verse 23. Second implication, Christ's application of that better blood, His own blood, to the true things in heaven itself in the presence of God Himself. That's the implication of His ascension. He takes that blood and applies it to the true things, to the heavenly sanctuary in the presence of God, verse 24. And so Christ's shedding of His blood And His appearance in heaven as Redeemer of His own is a once-for-all event that changes everything, as we noted in verses 25 and 26. The cleansing of heaven for believers by the blood of Christ is, as Augustine says, the turning point of all of history. Well, so much by way of brief review of what we considered last Lord's Day morning. We come in the second place then to certain death and judgment, verse 27. Certain death and judgment. 
The author of Hebrews here proceeds to relate the history of God's redemptive work to the personal, individual history of every person that has been born on earth. Verse 27. There is a relationship between the personal history of every human being and God's redemptive history that centers on the work of Jesus Christ. We might enter into the consideration of this by way of a question. People often ask the question, well, what happens when I die? Most people are interested in that topic, aren't they, and in that question. I've met very few, if any, who they may not initiate the discussion, um, but if you ask them or someone else raises the topic, they have an interest. Why? Because they know they are going to die one day. However, they often put off thinking about that. It is a reality. And so people want to know what happens when I die. Are you asking that question this morning? If not, let me ask it for you. What is going to happen to you when you die? Is there any hope for anything better than your life here below? Now, we're all in differing circumstances. Perhaps we think we are in a circumstance, a season of life that's not particularly easy. And so, this resonates immediately. Sometimes you may be in a season of life when the Lord in His goodness um, has blessed you with many things and you often don't think about anything beyond that. And that que this question becomes somewhat uh, um, not totally irrelevant. It's never totally irrelevant, but uh, less immediate in your mind. And sometimes some churches, as they seek to evangelize and bring the gospel to people, find it difficult in uh, communities where everybody seems to have whatever they want and they're very satisfied with this life. And it can be very hard because people go, well, you know what, I'm, I'm reasonably contented. Uh, what do I want to think beyond this life for? I just, I'm enjoying my best life now. The question still remains, what happens when I die? Is there something better, however good it may be temporarily in this world, is there something better than that when I leave this life? What happens to me personally? Um, do I just disintegrate into nothing? Is it just a bit like going to sleep, but I never wake up, never conscious again? I just disappear. Or am I absorbed into just, you know, the great cosmos around me? Um, I'm an individual right now. I know I'm an individual. You see me, I see you. You are not me, I'm not you. Um, but that all just disappears when I die, and somehow I just get absorbed into the universe. Um, that's a thought, ancient and modern. Let me illustrate from an ancient Marcus Aurelius, Roman emperor, philosopher, as he thought himself and others too. He thought of that. He said, man's soul is somewhat of a divine spark. And at death, it just returns to be absorbed back into the divine forever. That's what he thought happened. 
Or perhaps you have some sympathy with Eastern traditions, as we call them, dominant among which is the thought of reincarnation. So when I die, then I come back in a different life, different form even, perhaps. Um, Eastern traditions with their reincarnation think of souls returning for earth. As one commentator puts it, he says, quote, for near endless toil in one life after another until finally they merit the reward of oblivion, end quote. So under that way of thinking, um, you don't get to annihilation immediately. You come back and you go through it again and again and again and again until at last, somehow, some way, you can escape that. What's the Christian's answer to this great question? We could keep illustrating different views of men and uh, civilizations, cultures, and so on. Um, I think I've illustrated enough. What's the Bible's answer to this question? It's very different to any of those or any others that we might have considered. How does the Bible answer the most simple question, what happens to you when you die? Hebrews 9 Verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, that is simple enough for the youngest amongst us who is able to understand the English language to be able to grasp. There is life, and there is death, and no others in between, during, and so forth. There is a resurrection for both the righteous and the unrighteous, but you don't get to live a life over and over and over and over again. And there is something after death. You don't disappear into oblivion, whether it's some annihilation, whether it's into this universe, whether it's into the divine. What does the Bible say? It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. All will die. Only exception to that is if our Lord Jesus Christ return, returns and brings the coming judgment at that point. But if the Lord tarries, then we will all die one day. Some of us, as we get older, maybe are more conscious of that as the years roll by. But the reality is still the same. And what after that? Judgments. We are to stand before God, to be measured, to be judged according to the perfect standard of God's holy law. On what basis will you be judged? according to a perfection of God's law. Have you done it personally? Have you done it perfectly? And have you done it perpetually? Meaning every moment, no exceptions. That is the standard. Appointed for man to die once, and after comes that judgment. What does that tell us? It rules out the thoughts of men for second chances. What does it say? After death, judgments. Isn't this what Jesus Himself warned in His own words? John 8 verse 24, Unless you believe that I am He, that is the Christ, 
the one God has sent to save sinners, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins, he, sa- he told them. John writes earlier in his gospel, John 3 verse 18, whoever believes in Him, that's in Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So if you have not reckoned with this reality this morning, if you've not come to terms with the truth of what the Scripture says here very clearly, very plainly, then here again is, in God's mercy, an opportunity given to you to consider the serious, sober reality and warning of coming judgment. Ahead of you as ahead of me is death. But that is not the end. It's not an oblivion. It's not annihilation. It leads to judgment. A judgment in which sinners cannot stand on their own merits. What did Jesus say about those who leave this world in death and go to stand before God in their sins? Matthew 25 verse 46 these will go away into eternal punishment. They're sobering words. These ought to be words that not just ring in our minds, but almost should grasp you physically this morning. I sense almost a weight in my chest as I say these things. Not to say that everybody ought to have that physical response. But these these words should weigh on us. These will go away into eternal punishment, the Lord Jesus says. That's bad news, isn't it, this morning? Bad news. But there's good news. Jesus has made provision for the forgiveness of such guilty sinners. Jesus died on the cross as a sin-bearer, as a substitute in the place of sinners, sinners like you and me, and then appeared before God in heaven with the marks of His atonement still on His hands, His feet, His side, the blood-bearing testimony offered in the true holy place, bearing testimony to His great redeeming work for all who will repent of their sins and look to Him in faith. That's good news, isn't it? It's bad news if you think you are going to die and stand before God in judgment and you will be okay. You will not. But there is one who has interposed, as the hymn writer uses that wonderful word, interposed his own precious blood that sinners like you and me may not have to face the wrath of God forever and ever. He took that Himself and exhausted it 
in His work upon the cross. If you will trust in Jesus this morning, you have no fear of coming judgment, for Christ has exhausted. That's another great word, isn't it? He has exhausted the fury of the wrath of God for your sins, and you will never be called to pay penalty for them. If you're a Christian here, that should move you to tears. It should move you to tears. Consider the, the, the fury of the wrath of the eternal God against sin. Maybe you've had the experience or you know the experience of someone who has upset somebody very important and powerful in this world. It usually doesn't go well, does it? There is some fairly serious consequence from that. But in the end, their fury is not limitless. And uh, perhaps in the end, it, it comes to an end. It is not like that with the fury of the indignation of the righteous eternal God. The wrath of God is not some passion that rises and falls, ebbs and flows. It is the expression of the perfection of His holy being. And it is expressed according to the infinity of His being. How will you escape? such wrath, if you seek to stand before such a God in your sins. You will not, and you cannot. But the glory of the gospel is this, that one, Jesus Christ, has interposed Himself. He has stood in the place of sinners like you and me to exhaust that. Now, we may not be able to fully wrap our minds to comprehend how He can do that. How does God in His own Son exhaust the infinite wrath that we deserve? That if we have to bear that, will be forever and ever and ever and ever. How does that get exhausted in Christ in those hours upon the cross, so that Christ can then say, it is finished. It's exhausted for all those who will trust in Him. I can't explain that to you, but I know it is true. We were thinking about some other doctrines in the conference yesterday down in Sacramento and saying it's often this way that as we speak of God and His works, we cannot, we're not obligated to be able to fully comprehend and explain them to the satisfaction of finite men, but we are required to believe them as the church and to confess them, and here is one of them. This is true. If you will believe in Jesus Christ this morning, if you will repent of your sins, Judgment will not be the everlasting punishment of hell. Death for you will be but an open door to the fullness of eternal life. 
into which you have already entered. And to receive the fullness of the blessings of adopted children of God. But if not, I appeal to you this morning if this is you, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, a day is coming. A day that is appointed. You may not know that when that is. I do not know when that is. But it is appointed by God. It is a certain date. Certain death and judgment. For after death comes judgment to all those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ and the great offer of eternal life in Him. That brings us in the third place this morning to eagerly awaiting. Eagerly awaiting, verse 28. The author of Hebrews here concludes with two important observations. First of all, he tells us that in the death of Christ and in His ascension into heaven, something definitive has happened. In other words, it's a definitive work with a definitive result. What is that? To bear the sins of many. Why did Christ die? Why did Christ ascend into heaven to offer that better blood in the heavenly sanctuary to bear the sins of many, the author says. Verse 28a. Here this passage contains a statement both of the means and the end for all of human history. The means is the appearance of Jesus Christ as that decisive intervention that would change everything in terms of the desperate plight of sinners. This was the great significance, the great importance of the first coming of Christ. He came not just to be born, not just to assume to Himself, to use the right technical term, uh, a true humanity, but He did that in order to live and to die. He had to live the life of all righteousness to fulfill the law's demands, and then He had to die to offer His blood to pay penalty, to offer that sacrifice so that He might appear for us in God's presence. Here the focus is on that twofold work, His death for our forgiveness and His life in resurrection and ascension for our salvation. Romans 6.10, Paul says, the death He died, speaking of Christ, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And so Christ died definitively, and He lives definitively. He secures our salvation, Christian, by His eternal testimony to His once-for-all work for our salvation. Taken together, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His eternal life in heaven are the means of our salvation, the author says. Verse 24, for Christ has entered 
not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And then verse 26 expresses the end. That was the means. What's the end? Verse 26, the end towards which all of this is directed, to put away sin. Why did he do all that? To put away sin. And then verse 28a says it again, just in case we miss it in verse 26, to bear the sins of many. Christ has taken away the sin of all those who will trust in Him. That's what He came to do. His work was directed to that end, and it is accomplished, done once for all and forever. This is the great intention, the great purpose of the saving work of Christ. All of which, notice here, is now declared, is heralded, it is preached in the past tense. Did you catch that? He was sacrificed. He entered heaven to appear for us. It's done. It's accomplished. Secure. Finished. Once for all. And yet, Christian, we still have to contend with sin, don't we, in this world? We're not yet perfected. Sin is defeated, but not yet fully removed from the Christian, whilst we yet remain in this world. And therefore, the author, reflecting on that, says we eagerly await Christ's return, because that's when that will be, finally accomplished. We eagerly await Christ's return to save us from what yet is still the struggle with sin, the putting off of the old man, the putting on of the new man. We must yet wait, but we eagerly await that day, the ultimate redemption of our body and soul, the ultimate granting of us in consummate form of our great salvation. But whilst we wait, we are still secure forever, now and forever. Yes, in God's purpose and timing, we have the already and wait the not yet. But it is not yet of uncertainty. It is a not yet of simply waiting fulfillment in God's great time and wisdom. So, that's the first observation the author makes here. The second observation he concludes with is, although Christ's death and appearance in heaven for us is the turning point of history, it's not the end of history. That was a turning point for sure, a great turning point according to Augustine, and I think he's right. But it wasn't the end of history. Everything didn't come to culmination and consummation at that point. And that's where we come to the very last part of the very last verse of this section, verse 28b. Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. What remains? 
is not for more of the work of the salvation to be accomplished. That's, that's done once for all. What remains is the proclamation of that whilst Christ tarries. The extension, advancement of the kingdom of God through the proclamation of that gospel. The ingathering of all those that God purposed from all of eternity to save through faith in Christ. That's what remains until Christ appears that second time when He will not come to deal with sin. He's already done that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We might put it this way. History had a beginning, didn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning of history is the creation of all things in God's sovereign purpose. But then history had a problem. Man rebelled, disobeyed God, fell into sin and condemnation. But history has this great focal turning point that provided the answer to the sinner's greatest need. That was the first coming of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, His life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven as the great Redeemer, as the great Priest. But history also has its end point, its culmination. If you like the technical theological term, it's it, the, the theologians talk about the telos, simply just the Greek word for end, so don't be mystified by that. History has its great end point, the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not to come in a state of humility and weakness, but to return in great glory and power and strength. As the author says here, verse 28, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. What a great hope that is. I, I trust you rejoice in that this morning. The great hope we have as Christians that's given to all who believe, even though we yet have to struggle and fight the great fights day after day, battling yet with sin, we have this great hope. The return of Christ, the great culmination, the great end point, the great telos of all of human history. Puritan John Owen put it like this. He says, quote, Faith in the second coming of Christ is sufficient to support the souls of believers and to give them satisfactory consolation in all difficulties, trials, and distresses. All true believers do live in a waiting, longing expectation of the coming of Christ. It is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of a sincere believer so to do. And then Owen concludes where he says, at the second appearance of Christ, there will be an end of the business about sin, both on his part and ours, end quote. 
Do you sometimes feel weary, Christian, in the battle with sin? Discouraged even? It will not always be this way. It will not always be this fight and this struggle. It's not simply the way that things are and always will be. Sin has been decisively, definitively dealt with in the death of Christ. And even as true believers still have to war against it in this world, the victory is already secured. And that victor's crown lies ahead for each and every true Christian. As one commentator so wonderfully wrote in just these few words, he said, quote, lies not far ahead, not far ahead. I trust that encourages your soul. However weary you may feel in the battle this morning, not far ahead. Now, he wasn't seeking to be the prophet or a son of a prophet for predicting the day of Jesus' return. It was in that spirit of saying, when we consider what that will mean to us for all of eternity, then the struggles of this life will seem so small and short in comparison. It's that spirit of the Apostle Paul when he says the light and momentary afflictions of this life compared with the surpassing glory of that which will be ours hereafter for all of eternity. That's the spirit in which he said it. Lies not far ahead. Do you know anything of that this morning? To encourage your soul. There are many things from the Scriptures we can speak of that are characteristic of the Christian, but here this morning is this idea, eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We often use these words as we gather around the Lord's table, and we, so we remind ourselves we, we do this by His commandment. He is the Lord and King of His church, but only until He comes. And then we often use those words, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we're focusing on here, this great hope that we have. Are you eagerly awaiting that this morning? Or perhaps it might be that you go, well, yeah, I am, but, you know, there's a lot of other things I want to do in this world first. Um, one of the ways we can examine our hearts and test, are we really eagerly awaiting something? Um, how disappointed would you be if the Lord returned now? Would you think, well, you know, um, I had a lot of years left. I wasn't that old. You know, I was kind of looking forward to doing a whole host of other things. You know, I'm, I'm glad He's here, but, you know, well, what did I miss out on? Um, or if you're older, maybe you're looking forward to retirement, and you're going, well, you know, I, I could have done with a few years of just, you know, I worked really hard, and I'd saved up some money. I paid my mortgage off. You know, my, my kids are doing well, and they're doing all their things, and, and now's the time for me. And my spouse, let's not be too selfish, right? Uh, for me and my spouse, uh, to kind of enjoy some things. And the Lord's returned. Hmm. Uh, kind of, did I miss out somewhere? Um, you know, sometimes we can be so wrapped up, even in the good things that God gives us in this world, that when that which will surpass all of that, we go, well, yeah, but, you know, I'd like to do all of this first. We need to think about that. Are we eagerly awaiting the Lord's return this morning? One last application then. What matters then from all of this? 
is really only one thing. Have you repented of your sins? Turn to Jesus Christ in faith to save you so that when He returns, not to deal with sin in penalty payment, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Does that describe you this morning? Are you in Christ this morning? Sometimes when we say this, we have to say it very carefully to make sure we are speaking properly according to the truth of God's Word. But let me say it because it will strike, I hope, by way of the application. Did Christ die for you this morning? And just before everybody jumps on me at the door and says, you know, you've suddenly become an Arminian or something, um, you'll hear to the end of the sermon. Did Christ die for you? Does this speak of you this morning? The answer is yes, if you repent of your sins and trust in Him alone for salvation. This applies to you. He died as your substitute. Sometimes as we speak and preach even, sometimes we want to be so careful that we can make it so impersonal. Paul was always a very careful theologian, spoke properly concerning these things. But what did he say concerning the Lord Jesus? He said he was the one who loved what? Sinners? Yes, he said that sometimes. But what does he say in Galatians 2.20? The great personal testimony of Paul the Christian, who loved me, he says, and gave himself for whom? For sinners? Yes. But Paul says, for me. Can you say that this morning? You can say that if you've repented of your sins by the Lord's help and grace and trusted in Jesus alone for salvation. He loved me and gave Himself for me. Let me take up the other picture just as we close here of of the text here. When our Lord Jesus entered heaven in His great ascension to appear before God in the heavenly temple as the great guarantee of salvation and intercessor for His people, was your name among the number that He represents? Is He representing you here this morning? Same answer to the question, did He die for you? Yes, if you repent of your sins and trust in Him alone for salvation. He is there to represent for you if you will believe. For me, if I will believe, if we've trusted Him, He is our Savior, our great High Priest, our great Redeemer. And if that's the case, if we've trusted Him, then we have peace with God, Paul says. We have a joy that bears fruit within us, even as we eagerly await Him. As we eagerly await the Lord Jesus' return, it's not an idle waiting. We don't sit in some waiting room with our feet up in a nice reclining chair. The Lord has 
called us to work for Him as faithful servants while we eagerly await Him. We seek to worship Him even in the um, imperfections of our yet unglorified bodies and souls. We bear witness to Him and His glorious gospel to an unbelieving world whilst we eagerly await for Him. To a world that is lost, to a world still standing in the guilt of its sins, and we have the answer So one last time, are you in Christ this morning? Did He die for you? Does He represent you in heaven? If you repent of your sins and trust in Him, He did, He does. And if that is true of you, Christian, then whilst you eagerly await for Him, work for Him, labor for Him as a faithful servant so that on that last great day when He does return in glory, you will hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. May God grant it to each one of us this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You for this one who offered Himself once to bear the sins of many, the one who is coming, not to deal with sin, but to save those fully, completely, consummately, even as we eagerly await for Him. We pray that You would burn Your great warnings into our hearts and minds, particularly for all those yet in their sins, O Lord. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We pray, O Lord, forbid it that any should ignore this warning this morning. Forbid it, O Lord, that any should be called into eternity, or that last great day when you appear in glory should overtake them, and they still be in their sins. Lord, cause those things to make sinners tremble, but not to despair, but so that they might flee to the cross of the Savior who has been provided for such sinners, and so that they might say that they are included in these sins of the many for whom Christ shed His precious blood. Here as we pray for your son's sake. Amen.